Welcome to another episode of Ask the Zamboni Experts. I'm your host, Marty Elliott. Along with me today from the Zamboni Company is our regional manager of the United States, Doug Peters. And today we're going to be discussing uh, the preparedness of emergency situations and the proper uh, handling of fuels uh, during situations that uh, occur and have occurred. And our guest today on our episode is Terry Pichet, who's the technical director of the Ontario Recreational Facilities Association, Inc. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hey, Marty. Good afternoon, Marty. Good to hear from you guys. Well, let's jump into this, uh, Terry. Um, due to the recent uh, situation that occurred last week uh, down uh, in the USA, let's uh, let's uh, talk about this. Uh, as far as uh, Orfa, you guys have obviously been following uh, the October 4th ice surface incident in Rochester, New York. Perhaps you can share a little bit with uh, what the position is and what you folks have done. Well, we'll go back to the future. I think it was October the 14th, not the 4th. <clears throat> regardless of the date the incident that hit social media that probably is going to have uh, the uh, filmer of it get some sort of residual check from uh, from youtube uh, definitely was a sensation across uh, all forms of social media and the ironic part of it is is um, you know uh, it's not the first time it's happened and most likely it's not going to be the last one that uh, is going to occur in our industry yeah and uh, let's let's hope it's a last. It uh, definitely was uh, was definitely a scary situation for those uh, no doubt present in the uh, structure in that facility and those of us that have uh, seen that video over and over again. So, what's the industry suggesting as a follow-up to this uh, recent situation, Terry? Well, let, let's back the train up to that last conversation to start things off, Marty, because I was mesmerized by the skaters that were out on the ice surface skating circles around a burning ice resurfacer. Yeah. with no cause uh, of their own personal health or safety they just thought it was a, another day at the rink and they weren't going to give up any of their ice time so the question becomes is why were they out there in the first place because the industry best practice is that this heavy piece of equipment has got lots of blind spots on it nobody should be on the ice while the operator's doing his uh, his his business that are out there yeah, definitely expose that situation. As you said, best practices, uh, we know what uh, what is right and what is wrong. Certainly demonstrated uh, the wrong process, the standard operating procedure uh, with your ice surfacer. So let's let's talk about that. I mean, uh, where 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 do we learn? Where, where do we go from here? Well, you know, the first thing we're going to give a little bit of a clarifier here that the intent is not to... Uh, you know throw the uh, the facility under the uh, under the bus here in regards to how they handled things that got caught on uh, film and and directly put the social media for all of the operators out there to quickly critique as they sat drinking a, either a hot coffee or a cold beer and and kind of said maybe that's not the way they would handle things so our intent here is is definitely not to shine a bright light on the operation but maybe uh, reconfirm some of the messages that we've been putting out collectively, both you guys as, as manufacturers and, and Resurface and the ORFA through our partnership, our training partnership that we have uh, with the Ice Maintenance Equipment Operations course and uh, our certification, the Certified Ice Technician designation. So this is not new. I mean, we've been dealing with uh, ice resurfacers that unintentionally catch fire. And I can remember having a conversation with uh, Frank Zamboni uh, going back 10 or 12 years ago because you guys critique our, our materials and people need to understand that. We don't write this in, in isolation. We don't write our materials in isolation. We give uh, both manufacturers uh, an opportunity to go through and critique what we're saying as, a, as an industry. 
to make sure that A, we're accurate, and B, that we're reflecting uh, uh, correctly the way the manufacturer would like to be presented. And and Frank reached out to me uh, years ago saying, look, Terry, I'm, I'm, I'm not really liking, you know, the picture of one of our, our pieces of equipment on fire in your materials. And I pointed out to, to Frank that uh, we also did uh, his competition, Resurf Ice, and, and there was uh, uh, references to burning uh, uh, equipment that uh, they've encountered. And and what I did say was, look, and it, it's more important that the average uh, person understands that they can catch fire. And it's not a reflection on the quality of the piece of equipment. It's the reality of it's, it is a piece of equipment that's under high pressure and it's got a lot of contributing factors that at any time can fail. What the average listener has got to appreciate is that you guys build ice resurfacers. You don't build hydraulic hoses. You go to a manufacturer for hydraulic hoses and you pick the quality of hose that's specifically designed for the pressures that you're going to run through it and you put your faith in that manufacturer that they're going to give you a quality product. Now, as soon as you guys drop it off, then that responsibility becomes mine. And that's no different than the conversation, the last conversation we had about a safe fuel handling in the CNG tank that uh, unfortunately blew up in, in uh, the University of Guelph. Now, the reality is, is that can we learn um, from this event? The the sad part is that we're repeating uh, information that we've said for more than 25 years in regards to being prepared for this type of incident. Nobody expects that this is going to happen when they go into work, but we do tell everybody that you have to be prepared in case it does happen. Now, to critique what's been shown on social media, there's there's some lessons to be learned here. The young driver or the driver, uh, don't know how experienced it was. You know what? Under the circumstances, his his approach to trying to get the machine uh, off the ice surface into the ice resurfacing room or maybe even outside uh, under the circumstances was probably not a bad judgment call. I, I don't know how I would react if flames started licking up between the seats and the, and the, uh, the fuel tanks. Um, but at that point, he made a judgment call. However, if he had taken any of our training, both USIRA and the ORFA offer uh, the Safe Ice Resurfacer Operator course, that, which is an, an introductory course for your first time operator to give them an idea of the risks and hazards and what's involved, or, or the more advanced Ice Maintenance Equipment Operations course. We spent a lot of time with this one saying, look, at, you, you need to be prepared. And don't, not having all the details, but I will confess that I've had some conversations with your, composi uh, your competition, uh, and they're very thankful in regards to what both uh, ORFA and USIRA have done in regards to response uh, to the industry to let them know uh, what we know. Uh, and they've uh, told me straight out. I mean, it's it's an older machine that that had uh, an equipment failure or hose failure that contributed to uh, the situation. Now, what we learned from similar events is that the best thing we can do is shut the machine off because when we shut the machine off it stops the supply of hydraulic fuel to the fire and yes it's not a pretty sight but it reduces it now we go into a lot of the the discussions in regards to the last thing we want to create is a blevy and a blevy is when a fuel tank be it uh, natural gas or propane gets to a point where before it blows up it releases the fuel and often it will now become part of the fire. It's going to, and once once that valve lets go, there's no turning that one back. It's not going to shut itself off until it cools down. 
So what we like to say is, hey, shut the machine off. There should be a fire extinguisher on board that if activated should relinquish the flames. Because once we stop the fuel to the fire, then getting rid of the flames is going to be that much, uh, that much quicker. So, I mean, the, the good news here is that nobody was hurt including the driver, which amazes me because he looked like he was a stuntman on some sort of movie set in regards to a, a flaming ice resurfacer. But in the end, you, you know, we've got to build this into our training programs is our operators need to be prepared to, to respond when these type of incidents happen while they're in the cockpit of whatever piece of equipment they're driving. Yeah, and you refer to a judgment call, uh, right or wrong. Um, due to the circumstances and the amount of uh, patrons that were so close to the situation that were in the building, um, uh, personally, yeah, he made the right call to get that machine away from people as quick as possible. Um, and Lord, he put himself in danger, but the good news is he's safe, he's sound, uh, which is uh, very uh, happy to hear from uh, all of us involved in in this situation as uh, industry uh, 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 custodians, if you will, uh, moving forward. So let me let me talk about uh, Terry as far as um, uh, what your follow up is, what Orfa's uh, follow up is uh, to the situation, and some of the alerts and releases that have taken place. Well, before we move on to that, I'm just going to make a, a brief comment to your statement, Marty, because you're 100% accurate. I mean, ultimately, he did get the machine off of off the mm -hmm. ice surface and into the ice resurfacing room. But I think it, here's another great opportunity to remind our listeners on the importance of housekeeping, uh, the ice resurfacing room, because we have no idea what was in the room once he took this flaming machine into it. And we talk about uh, you know, properly storing fossil fuels. And we talked about that in the last podcast. What if there was a five gallon can of gasoline in there? What if there was propane bottles that were being stored in there? What if there was cleaning chemicals? So it goes back to some of the conversation that we had earlier in regards to our responsibility to make sure that not just the equipment is safe, but the environment that we use it in or park it in or store it in, in fact, is, is, uh, is safe as well. Now, what we're going to do as an organization is, is nothing more than to support the manufacturers. And what I need to do is uh, apologize to both manufacturers uh, on behalf of the industry. And ultimately, when these type of events happen, if it's a toxic air situation or a, an event that we saw on October the 14th, the headlines always use a brand name when it comes to um, reporting uh, what happened. And in reality, you, you got to lay the blame where it is deserved. And unfortunately, that's going to be with the facility manager. I mean, somebody's got to ask how well this piece of equipment was maintained. The ironic part of it is that the piece of equipment that always garnishes the headlines and it's always nice to beat up on, on, the, on a manufacturer. The reality is, is that this is, that machine was 20 years old. It no longer had a manufacturer's responsibility. That's long since gone. When the when the warranty rubbed off on this thing, if there was no recalls, it becomes the full responsibility of the rink owner to make sure that in fact that this piece of equipment is safe and serviceable. And I'm not going to preach to you guys. You you wander around the province. You know that there's lots of facilities out there that are on a, a wing and a prayer and, and hoping that they're going to get through a season without a failure. 
And I know that you've seen some equipment out there that you just kind of shake your head out and, you know, do a little bit of a prayer on the way out saying, hope this thing doesn't fail on you after you've given them advice in regards to things they really should take a look at. Now, both primary manufacturers in the province put out an array of information. You guys put out alerts. Your website is chocked full of information on experiences that you garnish from users and you pass that information along. Where's the, the tripwire? Is usually uh, our members don't read them. They don't take the time to absorb the information that you gave guys give the follow-up service to the sales and look at, yeah, things happen to this piece of equipment. This is the contributing factor. And if you do A, B, and C, you're going to reduce the potential for uh, this type of event occurring. So as much as uh, the, the event on October the 14th garnished a lot of interest by all forms of media, the reality is, is that, you know, unfortunately, it's it's not an isolated incident. I stopped uh, collecting files on um, ice resurfacers that caught fire. I mean, at the end of the day, to me, there's no story here other than it wasn't properly maintained or it wasn't properly circle checked before the operator went out. We have all these safety mechanisms that are in place post-sale that often the, the facility operators and management uh, are not conforming to. And that that's really the root of the problem here is that if we're maintaining our equipment as you guys uh, suggest, and we're uh, conducting comprehensive circle checks, the potential for a failure like this significantly reduced. Yeah, definitely. I mean, best practices, which takes me to the next question. O ORFA, uh, standard uh, operating procedures and best practices. Let's uh, walk down that path uh, due to this situation. I know what, uh, what I assist uh, in the uh, ICE uh, maintenance equipment operation course uh, with a facilitator doing best practices and implementing standard operating procedures, but maybe you can take it a step forward, Terry, uh, from the outcome of this incident. Well, I mean, ultimately, uh, the equipment requires some sort of operational manual. Now, you guys, uh, both manufacturers, hand out all kinds of free information in regards to how best to operate this piece of equipment. And that's the foundation block for me to develop the SOP. I then need to marry it into all the other uh, policies and procedures that are relevant to these type of situations to develop the SOP. So underneath the fire code, I need to have uh, an emergency uh, plan in place. And so I need to go back and take a look at the emergency plan to make sure that in fact, it does reflect this type of scenario. I mean, we only got a short clip on social media. We have no idea what the action of the operator was uh, after the uh, camera got turned off. Uh, but in reality, uh, and like we always like to say in our training program, we're told uh, from the time we enter uh, primary school not to pull the fire alarm. We're, that's that's bred into us right from the get-go. So what we talk about in our, our training programs is that as a uh, facility operator in charge of the building under these circumstances, you have the authority to pull the fire alarm. And really that's what needs to happen. And, and the ironic part of it is, I don't think anybody in the in the building pulled a fire alarm. I never heard an alarm go off. No, and, did I. you know, so I, I mean, here's a prime example of we need to get everybody's attention because maybe there's people in the lobby that didn't see what was going on or other parts of the building that we need to make them aware that in fact, there's an emergency situation that is happening. So yeah. 
all this does is it requires facility management to go back and, and do a couple of things. One, do they actually have an SOP? If they do, fabulous. Two, is it up to date? Take a look at the date it was created. I'm willing to bet it's probably 10 years plus old. And three, is it actually used or does it sit in a book someplace as a document that looks really nice when somebody comes along to, to uh, analyze how operations are happening inside your building? These are tools that will only work if they're used. And if we're not providing that workplace specific training, uh, then it's not going to work. I mean, I always ask the classes, how many of you have actually used a fire extinguisher? Their decorations, wherever we go, in a hotel, uh, in a school, in a recreation facilities, they hang on the wall like a piece of art. In reality, as the facility manager, I got to make sure that all my staff actually know how to use this piece of equipment. That means taking them out back and safely lighting some cardboard on fire and let them use a fire extinguisher. They understand how to sweep it, how not to get too close so they don't blow the flames all over the place. We've all been down that road, but in reality, when we take a look at both our, our seasoned veterans and our part-time staff, most of them don't get any of this type of training because we've lulled ourselves into a false sense of security that everything, in fact, is safe inside of our, our operations. What happened on October 14th is, is a wake-up call, a reminder that on any given shift, we could be going in a whole different direction in regards to uh, uh, keeping the building safe and serviceable. Yeah, I mean, this week I'm uh, with uh, uh, John Archibald in Burlington, uh, assisting and teaching the uh, uh, IMEO course. I mean, that's probably a good time to, uh, because the conversation is going to come up this week uh, about uh, fire extinguishers, and maybe that's something we implement to uh, have that uh, procedure in place. How do, I mean, I'll ask all 15 of the participants this week, have you ever had to use a fire extinguisher? I'll be surprised if we get more than 30% putting their hand up saying, yes, I have. I mean, myself personally, I've only used one once, and it was to, it was to not put out a fire. It was more just checking it out than anything. Um, so maybe that's best practices in the uh, course. Uh, moving forward yeah i I, uh, I used to carry the clip from war of the roses with michael douglas when him and his wife were going through the divorce and the christmas tree catches on fire and he's standing there reading the instructions on the side of the fire extinguisher to figure out how it works it kind of emphasizes that most likely the standard operator is going to be in the same situation we think we know how to use it but in fact it's not let me bring my uh, co-host in, Doug Peters from our uh, U.S. Uh, uh, facility and plants. Uh, Doug, uh, perhaps you don't want to jump in and ask some questions to uh, sure. Terry. Terry. Terry, first off, I want to uh, compliment the ORFA on the letter that they put out. Uh, I thought it was very well thought out, very well done. Uh, it uh, brought forth the message. It offered up what you guys uh, have available for um, people working in facilities to better educate themselves, but it was not self-serving in any way. And I think that it was put forth with being uh, put out there to try to let people know what they should be doing. And uh, I, I just thought it was very well thought out and very well done. And I want to compliment uh, you guys on on what you put out for the industry. Well, D Doug, I, th I thank you for that, but I'm gonna have to uh, turn the uh, the mirror around and, and actually thank the manufacturers because as much as we would like to take uh, the accolades in regards to the information that went out, it was actually a retread. 
And it was a retread from an event that happened at the Countryside Arena more than 20 years ago. And it's the clip that you see in the Things That Move video that we use as part of the introduction to, uh, to the IMO course. Uh, and at that time, we went back to uh, Frank Kellner and we went to Donnie Schlepp. The, uh, they were the key points of contact for both manufacturers at that point. And they helped us craft the information that we used as a foundation. And all we did was breathe new life into it in 2020. Um, but we listened very carefully to you guys. I mean, at the end of the day, you guys are the experts. Um, we just come across as being neutral in regards to the way that we approach things. But in the end, um, it's it's a great relationship that we have with the manufacturers and it's what makes us successful in regards to what we try to do to support you guys in making sure that your equipment is going to function as design. And that's that's all we try and do is that we, we try to make sure that the people that get into the cockpit of an ice resurfacer understand the complexities, the dangers, the risks, the hazards, and be prepared for anything that can happen when they're out on the ice surface. So it, it's a win-win relationship. Well, we've talked a little bit, or you've talked a little bit about operators, and I guess one of the questions that I've got is, you know, what can we do besides, obviously, the operators needing training? And I think that this is a, a good, would be a good 15-second clip of why an operator should be properly trained before they get on the machine. And we get the questions quite a bit about how old should somebody be? Well, I think this proved that you know, a minimum age at all would be somebody who's got a license to drive a vehicle in the States or in Canada. And it maybe it needs to be a little bit more advanced, but what, what do you think that an operator can do to better prepare themselves uh, so that they can try to prevent this? And obviously you can't prevent everything from happening, um, but what would your suggestions be besides getting proper training, Terry? Well, I, I mean, again, I'm going to uh, point the uh, the compass back at you guys because the investment that Zamboni's made over the last little while in regards to their video tutorials and how to properly use their piece of equipment, it couldn't be more helpful to the first-time operator of your piece of equipment. And your competition, Resurfice, does the same thing. They have, they have uh, videos that are available to assist new operators in understanding the piece of equipment. As a facility manager, I need to figure out how I'm going to move forward. And, and we may have discussed this before, but I think it's worth repeating. I mean, there was a time that the association went out and said, look, it, we think all your operators should be CITs and you should send them to RFA training to, to assist them uh, to get to that juncture. But in reality, what's happened uh, over the last 20 years that we've been in the CIT business is that employers have wised up and said, look at why are we sending any of our operators to RFA to get a CIT? Why don't we ask for it at the point of hiring that they should be arriving with a strong foundation in regards to the ice marina business and we can build from there. So that's a self-investment. And anybody that's getting into this business that thinks that they're going to get the luxury that I had when I started off in the 70s to take 10 or 15 years to learn the hard way about my business is, is definitely disillusioned in regards to the way that things are conducted in, the, in, in 2020. Ultimately, I either have to arrive with this information and get it built, an employer has to design an internal training program that meets or exceeds the RFA uh, USIRA presentation 
and you, they, they've got the right to do that. And then they need to enhance it with workplace specific training. And then there's gotta be a retraining uh, complement that comes along with it. So th this is a good uh, opportunity to uh, uh, for facility managers to evaluate exactly how comfortable that they would be had this turned uh, uh, the other way and the operator had not been as, as successful as what he as what he was there'd be some hard questions in regards to the level of training that the individual had had uh, had it been uh, turned out a little bit more serious than what it did yeah, I think it's going to be a wake-up call for management of facilities or ownership of facilities uh, as to who they're putting on the piece of equipment and what kind of training that they have. And again, Terry, you've been in the industry for longer than I have, and I've been in it for almost 100 years. Um, it, it's something that I think we've seen a lot of things. I've talked about writing a book about it, but I don't think anybody would buy it because they wouldn't believe the stuff that's that's transpired. We can prep as best we can, but then when something occurs, it's is that how is that person going to react at that point in time uh, when something like this happens? And it, you've said it very clearly, and Marty said it as well. It's amazing. You know, it's great that the guy got the machine off the ice. Uh, the the user groups were happy because they could probably have skated that night, but this could have been a far worse outcome than what it was, and and thankfully it wasn't. Well, I, I mean, another great point, Doug. I don't think anybody skated because there was enough hydraulic fluid out on that ice surface that was going to take some time to clean up. Hopefully they didn't put pylons out there and tell them not to skate in that area so they would not lose their ice rental. Again, maybe I'm glad that the film got turned off when it did. So uh, in the end, uh, you're right. Uh, we, we were lucky this time. Uh, and let's not fool ourselves. There will be a next time. It's Nothing is infallible. Uh, equipment fails regardless of what the name is on the side of it uh, and uh, you know we often will drive by a burning vehicle on the side of a highway right and we have to figure out what went wrong and I, I suspect just as many times someone wired their own stereo caused it but they drive by and they say look at look at that Ford burning or that Chev burning in reality we haven't got down to the root of of what the problem actually was well, it's like I've had people ask me and I go, you know, everybody likes to see a train wreck for whatever reason. And it's why keeping up with the Kardashians was so popular because you knew that there was going to be a train wreck every episode. So, uh, Terry, is there a position by ORFA in regards to having a fire extinguisher on board? And you touched a bit about uh, training and such on that. I think that that's something that the listeners and uh, rink personnel ought to can strongly consider, and I think we'll probably see a, a bit more requests for it uh, going forward. But uh, what's the ORFA's position on that? Well, the ORFA's position is to align ourselves with the governing authorities for the province of Ontario, which would be the same, I suspect, in every province and territory in Canada. And I'd be surprised that every state, uh, their fire codes didn't reflect uh, the same responsibility. When you're using a fossil fueled piece of equipment indoors underneath the Ontario Fire Code, there must be a fire extinguisher on board. 
there needs to be a 10 pound fire extinguisher on board. So that, that is my responsibility as the, as the facility manager to make sure it's there. Uh, I, I would have to talk to Marty at the time of the RFP. And if I wrote into the RFP that I wanted a fire extinguisher, he would add it to the price. No, no different than resurface would. Now, what happens with the pro in the province of Ontario, most times when the fire extinguisher comes with the ice reservicer, it's not mounted. And the reason it's not mounted is because that's a responsibility of the Joint Health and Safety Committee to actually pick the location to where the fire extinguisher is best mounted. So that's not a manufacturer responsibility. If I build it in the RFP, it arrives. Now I got to figure out where it gets mounted so that the operator in fact can access it uh, if so required. So uh, our position is know the fire code, comply with the fire code, and now it becomes one more element that has to be inspected as part of that circle check and it, get built, it gets built into my fire safety um, inspections. Uh, and uh, it's got to be changed out as, as set out to, on, the, on the manufacturer of the fire extinguisher based on its life cycle. Yeah, and I know that's something at our plant here in California that uh, we have an annual review of the fire extinguishers to make sure that uh, they're code compliant and that there's a variety of uh, extinguishers available because not, uh, I believe there's probably one extinguisher that is good for all fires, but not all fire extinguishers are created equal, as I'm sure you're fully aware. I'm going to throw this yeah. back over to Marty uh, and carry on the conversation, lads. Thanks, Doug. You know, you made a good point there, Terry, talking about the uh, size of an extinguish extinguisher. I mean, most tenders uh, in Ontario uh, require two and a half pound, some maybe a five pound. You made a comment about 10 pound. Is that from our industry uh, um, powers to be that are recommending that 10 pound uh, size? I would suggest you, Marty, that I'd have to go back and take a look at the fire code to to confirm uh, the, the, the 10 pounds. It was something that I just pulled from the air in regards to um, uh, the number. Um, yeah. Realistically, as a facility manager, I, I can't see two and a half pounds doing much other than spitting on it. Uh, a 10 pound is not really not that big. Uh, I know that we talk about the size of the uh, fire extinguisher in the IMEO course. Uh, and the other requirement is to have a 20 pound actually inside the room to back up to 10 pounds. So, uh, again, it's going to vary from uh, province to province and territory and state. So, uh, the uh, uh, facility manager needs to go back and and uh, re-educate themselves in regards to their responsibility. Sure. No, I get that for sure. So, um, let's uh, take a slide here and talk a little bit about, not about the incident, but the actual um, age of the equipment. Um, and where I want to go with this, Terry, and I want to get your feedback on this is... We've uh, recognized that the equipment uh, was old, uh, 20 years old, somewhere around that that age. Um, specifically talking about best industry practices for trading in or uh, uh, capital investments for uh, municipalities, states, uh, counties to be able to be prepared to replace their equipment when it's recommended by uh, industry uh, uh, manufacturers. Um, where, where's uh, ORFA stand on that as far as best practices? Well, we, we come from it from an asset management viewpoint is what we take a look at. So uh, as much as the manufacturer may build in recommendations specific to their equipment, what we've learned from practitioners. So when, when we talk about the RFA, the RFA is basically a gatekeep, 
gatekeeper of industry best practices. So we get the information from our members. So some of our larger members have got very quality asset management plans because they've got an asset management department. It's not an individual inside the facility operation. It's somebody from the outside that's looking over all the uh, different pieces of equipment that a municipality may own. And they sit back and say, okay, what's the best return on investment for our piece of equipment? So we've tapped into that. And I'm going to share with you uh, and and the uh, people listening, what we use as a, as a guiding light. Now that doesn't mean that it can't have variables attached to it, and it's a moving target based on the size of the operation and and how uh, how much the building in fact is being scheduled. You know that you've got buildings that run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The machine doesn't show up, doesn't shut off. And we've got others that shut down after four or five months and it, the machine sets quiet for seven months. And sometimes it's setting for five, six, seven months is not the best for the piece of equipment either. So let's not lull ourselves into a false sense of security that we're only using it half of the year and it sits for the other half. At times that can raise the risk also. What the industry recommends is this, for best return on investment, our members have discovered uh, uh, five years or 8,000 hours. And at that point, if I trade it in and I've maintained this piece of equipment, if we've taken care of it, it's no different than you bringing your vehicle in to trade it in for the next best thing, right? If you've taken care of it and it's well maintained, you got good me, you're going to get top dollars for it. If you've abused it, you're not going to get top dollars. So if we maintain the piece of equipment, uh, uh, five years, 8,000 hours, at that point, you're going to get the best return on investment. And what we need to build into this is that my selling point to those that I have to make the pitch to is that, yes, I'm getting uh, rid of this. Uh, uh, maybe I need to back up here. It's um, eight years or 5,000 hours. So let's clarify that. Eight years, 5,000 hours. Uh, and yes, the piece of equipment may be functioning fine. But what we need to talk about October 14th, it has to be brought in. Yeah, there's going to be some repairs to this piece of equipment. We've also lost a night's worth of revenue. So there's a couple of thousand dollars that was lost on that night. And if they take two or three days to get back into business by the time they source a, a replacement model, we're out four, five, six thousand dollars in revenues that we're not going to get back. So we got to build that into the uh, uh, to the potential losses by not having a quality piece of equipment. We go back to what Frank Zamboni said years ago. The, the one thing we have to sell is ice. And if we can't sell ice, we're not selling any of the other sides, sidebar stuff that comes along to it. So we make the recommendation based on a solid asset management planning. But in the end, it comes down to each operation. Um, having spoken uh, with Resurf Ice, their recommendation is at 15 years of age. Uh, it really needs a comprehensive overhaul. It needs somebody who's qualified to go through this piece of equipment and really invest some money to be able to move forward. And that might be the best investments for some operations. That, that, that's a business decision that has to be made. But what we have to, to, to walk away from here is that you can't get to an older piece of equipment and not maintain it. That's just inviting what we saw on October the 14th. So true. Yeah, I know, uh, and I speak of uh, Zamboni as a manufacturer, we have uh, recommended servicing uh, based on hours of the machine and 
different parts of the machine being serviced at different types times of hours uh, that have been occur occurring on the machine and can't stress this enough and I've seen it I know uh, my counterpart Doug you've seen it and Terry you've probably seen it the industry uh, somewhat is reactive and uh, certainly after this incident on October 14th um, hopefully people are going to become more proactive when it comes to taking a look at the machines properly getting it serviced by uh, their manufacturers, distributor, dealer uh, network, um, and even their uh, fleet department that uh, services uh, their own municipal or county uh, machines to take a look at those machines, not just the machine itself, but take a look at those parts of the machines, specifically hoses, hydraulic hoses. I mean, we talk about what travels in fluid and what travels electrically, and uh, I'm sure a lot of, uh, of um, uh, uh, Distributor dealers are getting phone calls for uh, their uh, manufacturers' machines to be serviced, uh, and those specific uh, uh, parts of the machine to be uh, to be uh, looked at uh, extensively uh, moving forward. Speaking of moving forward, Terry, how do we move forward? Where do we go from here? What uh, what are the best practices uh, uh, for uh, for the industry to say the top five? Um, I know what I would say. Uh, I'd be curious to see uh, where your uh, thoughts are on this. Well, let's not lose sight of this, uh, Marty, building on the, the comments you just made is that uh, the listeners need to appreciate that hydraulic hoses can rot from the inside as much as they can rot from the outside. So again, we don't know what the, the primary contributing factors were, but when we get to a piece of equipment that exceeds that eight years and 5,000 hours, that's not to suggest by any means that you're you're not going to be able to get through another season or a week or a month what we build in and what we focus in on is the operator that gets behind the seat. Ultimately, they need to understand that when they get in the cockpit and they fire this thing up for the first time, is A, you guys, both manufacturers, very clearly put the make, model, and year that it was built right on the machine for anybody to see. So it's it's not that it's hidden anywhere. So I want to take a look at it. And if I got getting onto a machine that's 10 years old, and I fire it up and that hour meter says that it's got 7,000 hours on it, uh, I'm going to want to ask some hard questions in regards to how much maintenance has been done to this piece of equipment and who did it. And if all they've done is drop the oil out of a fossil fuel fire machine and change some belts, mm, I think that I need to be a little bit more prepared when I go out onto the ice surface. That's not to suggest that if it's less that I need to be less prepared, but your your instincts need to be a little bit tighter and a little bit brighter as things start to move along here. So the takeaways from this is that understand that any piece of equipment hydraulically powered, ice resurfacer or not, has the potential for failure without warning. It's got nothing to do with make or model. We start to get into maintenance and um, the uh, uh, the investment uh, to keep this piece of equipment in top running uh, fashion that starts to come into play. Am I prepared for when something goes wrong with this piece of equipment? And we talk about lots of things in the class, right? We talk about the piece of equipment stopping because of no fossil fuel or some other issue and being able to respond so it doesn't destroy the ice surface and it doesn't create any other problems in a professional manner versus standing outside or beside the piece of equipment looking like I better get the owner's manual out here to figure out what I should do next. 
we'd like to suggest it's got to be the equivalent of a NASCAR crew. Not that we want you to work in that speed, but we want that efficiency. We want you to be able to understand how the piece of equipment can be isolated, how it can be moved, how do I take the pressure off the hydraulic system, all those other things that we talk about. And this is all stuff that has to be practiced. Is there a fire, stick, a fire extinguisher on board? Is it been checked? Uh, is it uh, dated correctly? And do I know how to use it? And in the end, have I actually been trained uh, to respond to any emergency situation? Regardless of October the 14th, there's a whole potpourri of things that can go wrong in a building on any given day that if you're the sole operator, you're in care and control of not only your, your safety, but the general public safety also. So are you actually prepared to be able to evacuate that building and reduce the potential risk of injury? So to me, those would be the key uh, takeaways uh, in regards to reducing uh, uh, you know, uh, any type of incidents uh, similar to this one that we saw on October 14th. Yeah, uh, you know, specifically to this incident, uh, being a hydraulic hose, uh, I know uh, all ice manufacturer, ice resurfacer manufacturers do have a hydraulic uh, sight gauge for their fluid to be uh, looked at. Uh, not to say this wasn't uh, the case, uh, that it wasn't uh, viewed by the operator, but I can stress, and you know Terry and Doug, that uh, what I do out there in training, uh, specifically the recommendation through the industry association, but also as a manufacturer, I speak of the circle check. And if this isn't prominent uh, and hasn't been best practices for uh, uh, facilities uh, management and operators, I strongly recommend moving forward that it is because I don't know, but uh, if that site gauge, uh, hydraulic fluid site gauge was looked at, um, there might have been an indication to the operator being below acceptable uh, uh, volume content uh, could have indicated to the operator that I've got an issue with my hydraulic lines or hydraulic fluid somewhere, someplace, and the machine might have been taken out of service. Who knows? But I mean, we can all speculate and sit here. But I guess where I'm going is the industry uh, that and what we uh, uh, put out there for best practices. Folks, listeners, make sure you're doing your circle checks on a daily basis. There's no question about it. Hey, Doug, anything you want to uh, bring into the uh, conversation before we uh, bring it to a close? Yeah, I Terry, I think that uh, you talked about the hours and age of machines. And we're very proud of the fact that we built equipment. And I've seen uh, machines that go back to even before I was born that are still in operation. Uh, are we in support of that? No, we're proud of the fact that our equipment stands the test of time. We certainly don't want to take this as a, a time to say, hey, people should consider buying equipment. Uh, I think what it, it does stress, and, and one of the things one of our former dealers used to talk about was um, getting a machine in for a service program. And I think that uh, our dealers down here in the States have got programs that they go through and do about 40 points where they go through the machine to check things. And it's for a set fee. And I believe our Canadian plant does something similar, and I'm sure the dealers up in Canada do as well. And that's the kind of thing that can help extend the life of machines. But even more so than doing that, I think it gives the customers an idea as to where their machine's at. The, these aren't pieces of equipment, no matter who the manufacturer is, that you can just add water to it, put another tank of fuel on it, and turn the key and go out there without doing some prep work to it. So I think it's really important that uh, the listeners out there, uh, if they haven't had their machine looked over by a, a qualified representative or one of our distributors, it's something that 
strongly would encourage you to do so. It's not going to guarantee that you're not going to have problems, but it's going to help reduce them. And what I try to say is if you can get the problems to occur, not on the weekends when you maybe have the less experienced help going on, but, uh, you know, prevent it, find it and spend that preventative money instead of reacting to it. It's going to go a long way. I will tell you, uh, it's been a long time since I managed a facility, Doug, but I will tell you even 25 years ago that I had built in $15 surcharge to every hour of ice that I rented that went into a capital reserve account that basically was put aside to buy my next ice resurfacer. So we figured out what it cost to provide the ice sheet and then we figured out what it was costing us to maintain the refrigeration plant and maintain the equipment and the money that came in through a user fee was distributed a portion went back into general revenues another portion went right directly into a reserve account to maintain what i considered to be the primary organs of the arena the refrigeration plant and the ice resurfacer i can have the most beautiful building in the world but if the liver and kidneys are not working or the heart's not working correctly i i've got no i'm not in business and the uh, decision makers need to understand the importance of this piece of equipment. We can't offer ice if we don't have a quality piece of equipment that's well maintained. That's just the the end of it. And I know that when you guys go out and try to suggest that uh, a quality maintenance plan, is, you know, should be considered, it it's looked at in regards to you know, oh here they go, they're upselling in regards to the way it is, but. In reality, that's my responsibility is to make sure that this piece of equipment is maintained. You're one option that I can explore to maintain my piece of equipment. I know that you guys offer large fleets, uh, mechanics to come right down to your shop and you provide them with an education on how best that they could help you guys maintain. But I know what happens. They pick this piece of equipment up from the rink and we babied it all winter and it gets thrown out in the boneyard and left in the rain and all all summer. And then the, when it comes back to put it in the rink, they bring it in, drop the oil and send it back to us. They have not spent any TLC in regards to the business end of uh, the unit, the conditioner. But that's probably a whole other podcast that we could uh, we could rant about if we wanted. Yeah, Terry, one last thing I'll, I'll say, Terry and Marty is, I'll never forget, this was a comment from a gentleman who ran a rink in a smaller community south of uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And he goes, I don't understand this industry. The second most important piece of equipment that we've got in the building next to the ice plant, which obviously is the first and foremost, because without that, you aren't going to have a need for an ice resurfacer. And we throw a kid, you know, and this goes back years, but he was probably making eight to 10 bucks an hour, throw a kid on the most valuable piece of mobile equipment in the building and then expect them to understand what they can do to that machine and, and put us out of business. So that will always stick in my head uh, for as long as I'm on this earth. Well, I, I'll suggest you uh, along the same lines, Doug, the one that sticks out with me is the the uh, time that I, I spent with Dave Westcott touring all the different states uh, back when USIRA was star and us uh, showing up at a brand new multi-million, and I'm talking over $40 million that was spent on this building to walk to the back to see a used ice resurfacer sitting in the ice resurfacing room. The lobby was phenomenal. The parking lot, unbelievable. 
but they bought a used ice resurfacer to service this building. I, I was flabbergasted. I thought, man, are your priorities completely out of whack? Yeah, yeah and that's sorry, Doug. And that's oh. not uh, that's not the first nor the last we'll uh, see of that. It is priorities and where they stand. Uh, Terry, let me ask you, any final thoughts? I know we're uh, going to touch on another subject uh, one day soon. I think this is our fifth podcast. We've been blessed to have you on on, on board with, uh, with us. But uh, any final thoughts uh, you want to bring to our listeners? Well, it's either a blessing or a curse. It depends which side of the mic you're on, I guess, if you're, if you're listening to it. Look, at, I got to throw this one back at you two. Uh, and knowing that you still have a very strong connection with the Facility Operator Managers Association, FOMA, uh, which is the working NHL group for the National Hockey League, uh, I'm hoping every one of them saw what happened on October the 14th, because I have no idea what we would do if we had a young person strapped to a seat and both manufacturers clearly say, no riders. You put it in your owner's manual, you throw a sticker on the machine, and then we get to the pro buildings and the semi-pro buildings, and they decide to circumvent that, that recommendation. They engineer their own seating, usually up over the fossil fuel tanks. I couldn't imagine had this been, and if they think for a minute that this can't happen on their watch, they're living in la-la land. Can you imagine had this been Saturday night of an NHL game and this happened and there was a young person strapped to the right-hand side, the sports channels would have this on a loop for about a week and they would never recover from uh, their brand being uh, literally burnt uh, when the, uh, if that were to happen uh, at one of their events. Yeah, um, we're fortunate that's not the situation, but I have to tell you our uh, our brand manager um, and uh, head of marketing, Paula Cooney, she stresses this to the FOMA group, to the NHL uh, industry, the sub um, uh, minor uh, pro leagues uh, regarding our second, uh, our position on having a second driver. And uh, you don't have to read a lot of paragraphs. It's short and sweet and it's to the point. We don't recommend it. So thank God the situation didn't occur uh, with a rider, a second rider on that machine on October 14th. Yeah. I go back to uh, I'm going to go back to our fearless leader John Milton who has said forever our job is to lead the horses to water we can't make them drink so at the end of the day if there is a situation where we get called to defend uh, what we recommended as as industry leaders and what you may have recommended as manufacturers I'm comfortable with our position they'll have to reevaluate in regards to the way that they conduct business moving forward. I mean, right now they got a grace with COVID-19. There is nobody sitting in that extra seat. There's nobody even in the building, but uh, COVID, the veil of COVID-19 is going to be lifted and there's going to be uh, uh, lots of marketing to get ba people back into these buildings after COVID-19 and they'll be throwing all kinds of perks at people to get them back into uh, professional sports. So let's see where this goes. Hopefully we learn from this lesson and, and move forward. Thanks, Terry. Well, listen, I want to uh, thank my co-host, Doug Peters, our regional manager of the United States, Terry P. Shea, the technical director of Ontario Recreation Facility Association. Terry, again, I want to thank you. You've spent a lot of time with us and the input 
and knowledge that you bring to the table for for us for our listeners is is greatly appreciated and i want to thank everyone to uh that for listening to another episode of ask the zamboni experts podcast if you have a question for one of our experts or an idea for future episodes please email your questions or requests to info at zamboni.com or for more information or additional podcasts episodes please visit zamboni.com forward slash podcast or search ask the zamboni experts on apple podcast google Podcasts and Spotify. This is Marty Elliott, your host, and wishing you an ice day.